me give you a definition of sin at the start. We can say that sin is this. Sin is anything that violates or contradicts the will and character of God as expressed in Scripture. Sin is anything that violates or contradicts the will, what he has spoken to us, the character, who he is, of God as expressed in Scripture. So we can't go outside of Scripture to determine what God's will or character is because God speaks to us through his word. So then sin itself is a violation of what God has given to us in his word. There's much confusion about that. Inside the church, there's a lot of confusion, partly because of legalism, which is these man-made laws that have been set up in addition to what the Bible has said. Um, Within the church, there can be this sort of religious legalism over on the right with views that have been established as standards for what are right and wrong, but you won't find those in Scripture. On the other side within the church, there is what we could call religious liberalism. So religious legalism over to the right, religious liberalism, or a fancier word that some of you might be familiar with or that you might come across is called antinomianism. It's the idea that God's laws or God's commands are of no concern. They can be buried under the deep ocean of God's grace. Jesus died. He showered you with grace for the forgiveness of sins. So you have no need to be concerned about crossing God's boundaries because all of those boundaries that you would cross are just covered up by God's grace. So in a church service, there's a theme, hey, God loves you, so you're good to go. There's confusion in the church as to what sin is. There's confusion in the world as to what sin is. There's blindness as to what sin actually is. And that comes as no surprise because Romans 1 tells us that the world is suppressing the truth. The truth of who God is, the truth of what he has spoken, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And that's Satan's number one tactic. Let's suppress the truth because Satan is a deceiver. Jesus, on the other hand, comes along and says, if you know the truth, the truth actually sets you free. So Satan's going to come along and say, I don't want freedom. I want bondage. I want slavery. How did we get here? How did our culture get here? If you're a reader, I would highly recommend Carl Truman's book, Strange New World. He explains that our society has arrived at a point that whatever you feel is best for yourself is what is best. There's no authoritative standard of morality outside of yourself. So when the world broadly speaks or hears of the term of sin, which applies a standard, a standard set by God, the world responds and says, that doesn't make sense. I dismiss that category. Okay, so what category do you have? The category that I have is self. The standard for what is best in my life is the standard that I embrace. And please don't impose a standard from yourself or anything else upon my life. Myself determines what is best. So there's confusion all around us. But as we see in this passage this morning, God leads us through the confusion and helps us understand sin very clearly. So as we go through verses 1 through 23, there are two truths Normally, I give you one big idea, but today, I guess we're walking away with two. 
Two truths that this passage, I think, just helps us with. Number one truth is this. The authority for declaring what is sin is the word of God. Okay? The authority for declaring what is sin is the word of God. I don't get to declare it. The world doesn't get to declare it. The word of God does. The second truth is this. The deepest part of everyone is sinful, showing our need for a Messiah. The deepest part of everyone is sinful, showing our need for a Messiah. Okay, so let's move into our passage, and we're going to have four questions that serve as our outline as we work through this passage this morning. The first question is simply this. Are we submitting to an illegitimate authority? It's a question that needs to be asked. Are we submitting to an illegitimate authority? All right, so what's going on in the text? Well, verse 1, we're introduced to two groups of people. Uh, Jesus is being surrounded. It says these two groups are gathering to Jesus. Uh, these groups are the Pharisees and the scribes. Who are the Pharisees? The Pharisees, by Jesus' time, have been around for approximately 200 years. You won't read about the Pharisees in the Old Testament. That's because that sect had not existed in the Old Testament. They came up during the silent years. And their name kind of explains who they are. Their name means holy ones or separated ones. And how they see themselves as holy or separate is by the standards that they keep. Now, Anyone can separate from the world. You can be a standard bearer, but what were their standards anchored in? They found their standards in something called the tradition, or the tradition of the elders. On one hand, in the Old Testament, you have the law of Moses. We saw this given to Israel at Sinai. The Pharisees came along and said, we want to protect people from violating the law of Moses. So what we'll do is we'll have the law of Moses here, but we'll come out a few feet further and build a fence around it. And that fence is a code of morals. It's called the Mishnah, if you're familiar with that. This tradition of the elders became the Mishnah. It is the, the standard by which the Pharisees lived by. And so if you crossed the first fence, that was considered sin in their eyes. That was the Pharisees. Then there's this other group that's gathered to Jesus there, and they're called the scribes. They come from the Old Testament. Ezra from the Old Testament was a scribe. They have understanding of the law. They were considered to be authoritative in their Jewish culture. Uh, by the time Jesus has arrived, they are very dominant in the synagogues. Their presence is, is very well felt and known. If, they were, if you were, there was a scribe here, they would get the first seats, the first pick of seats. So they had the first seats in the synagogue. And when you walked in, or when they walked in, I should say, you would have to stand out of respect for these scribes. At times, they were considered to be on par with the chief priest. So here is Jesus. So catch the scene here. Here is Jesus, and he is being gathered around by these two groups of religious people, the Pharisees and the scribes. And we're told now what they see in verse 2. 
It says that they saw some of Jesus' disciples eating with hands that were defiled, according to their tradition, that is unwashed. Now, what's going on here with this term defilement? Because it carries through all the way through verse 23. Um, defilement or uncleanness is one that we're somewhat familiar with today. I can see my boys after they come in from outside and I can look at their hands and I can say, those hands are unclean. I can tell that they've been somewhere. Or if I've been out in the yard mowing the lawn and I come in with a sweaty t-shirt and grass stains on it, Chris would say, that's unclean. Like, Get rid of it. It's dirty. In the Mosaic law, there were categories of cleanness, if you will, and uncleanness. Things like a dead animal, or a corpse, or anything that passed out of the body is considered to be unclean. But you have to realize this, that something unclean is not sinful. That's not a sin to have dirty hands or That corpse is not sinful itself. What you do, however, with your uncleanness now is either sinful or obedience. And the Pharisees and the scribes saw Jesus' disciples eating with unwashed hands and concluded they're in sin. But the problem is that the hand-washing part that they were focused on is not mentioned in the law of Moses as a category. So from what authority did they get this? Why were they bugged by Jesus' disciples not washing their hands? It says in verse 2, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. 4, verse 3, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to what? Not the law of Moses, not the scriptures that were in their hands, but holding to the tradition of the elders. And then Mark goes on to say, not only was it this, but they also had to follow the traditions in reference to washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. So the Pharisees and scribes ask a question that clearly answers where they stand in regards to morality, in regards to what is right and wrong, in regards to what is sinful or not sinful. They stand, they're standing under the authority of the tradition of the elders. Now, just something to observe here. Everyone appeals to an authority for what is right and wrong. Everyone believes that the shooting that happened in Uvalde was completely wrong. What makes things wrong? Well, Mark makes it plain as to what these individuals thought or held to as their standard or authority for what made things right or wrong. He's saying, you see this as wrong because you're holding to the tradition of the elders. So everyone now has an authority that they're listening to for what is right or wrong. I think going back to the beginning where I talked about religious legalism, they're going to appeal to standards that go beyond the Bible. And it's been a frustration that so many people have had with the church over the years. They say, where are so many of those rules coming from? I asked a pastor one time why that rule was there for our group. And he just looked at me with his veins bulging out of his neck and said, don't you dare question me. And they were out from the church. 
They couldn't find it in the Bible. They just saw that pastor as being the authority. And in the world, the world is constantly coming back to the self, what makes me feel right. We live in a world that is certainly different from Jesus's, but humanity has always had the same Achilles heel. Humanity constantly chooses to dismiss the one standard or authority that God has given to us to know what sin is. What is the one authority that God has given to us? It's his word, the Bible. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And as we go throughout the word of God, God gives us good rules and commands that we are to obey. He gives us the thou shalts and the thou shalt nots. And he gives us these rules so that we can abide in a boundary, in a safe relationship with him. So the authority for what is actually right and wrong is not the traditions that are going to be passed along, whether it's the legalism of the church or the cultural legalism of the world, abide by myself, the authority for declaring what is actually right and wrong as we look in Scripture is the Word of God. If it's sin in the Bible, it's sin. If it's not sin, then it's not sin. So the authority is the Word of God. Now, that being the case, let's move on to question number two. Are we voiding out the word of God? Question number one is, have we placed ourselves under an illegitimate authority? Do you see yourself as going back to the word of God for what is obedience to God? Question number two is, are we voiding out the word of God? Are we nullifying it here? So the question has come in from the Pharisees, why do your disciples do this? Because they're violating the tradition of the elders. And Jesus responds in verse 6 by saying this. He said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? What's a hypocrite? I mean, we're used to it in today's world where we look at somebody and we say, man, you are, you are very two-faced in everything that you do. The term word hypocrite actually came from the theater venue in Jesus's day. It was the actor who was up on stage saying words that jived with the script that was given to him or her, and then going home throughout the week and living his or her normal life. So to bring it to contemporary terms today, who is Tom Holland? Is he really Spider-Man clinging to buildings and swinging um, down the streets with what he says and what he does. No, Tom Holland sticks to a script, but when he goes home, he's Tom Holland. All right, some of you older folks are really getting your juices revved up, or should we say gunned up with Top Gun. <laughs> Tom Cruise is back on the stage with his planes, and, man, well, he's Tom Cruise. Now, is Maverick really Tom Cruise? No, he goes into the studio, and he has a script, and he's Maverick on the screen. But during the week, he's 
Tom Cruise. He's just kind of an ordinary guy. Yeah, movie star and all of that. On one hand, you could say they're living out the life, not in a pejorative, not in a negative sense, of a, of a hypocrite. When, when Jesus comes to the Pharisees, he's saying, you guys have the script. You've got it. But really, something else is going on in your life that tells me that you don't live the script. So how does this play out here? Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written? So here's Isaiah's prophecy back in Isaiah 29, speaking of the nation of Israel 700 years earlier. He said, this people honors me with their lips. There's the, there's the verbiage. But their hearts, their heart is far from me. So what do they do? On stage, they worship me. And how do they worship me? They teach as doctrines the commandments of whom? The commandments of men. So where's the word of God? It's displaced. It's put off to the side. But Jesus is saying, you worship me. You have the right words, but it's all vain. It's all empty because that's not truly what's going on. And so he points out that they have a sinful heart here. Their heart is far from me. You leave the commandments of God and you're holding to the traditions of men. Now, I could hear the Pharisees just kind of standing in front, looking at this new hotshot Jesus who is on the scene saying, okay, you've accused us of being hypocrites, of being vain, of using the wrong words, but can you give us an example? Can you give us proof? Well, that's what Jesus does in verses 9 through 13. He points out their sinful practices. He says, you have a fine way. And I think there's some sarcasm that's sort of dripping through there. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish your tradition. Well, how do they hold to this tradition? He says this in verse 10. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Okay, so here's the law of Moses that they were to live under. Honor your father and mother. And whoever doesn't, wow, young people, listen to this. Whoever doesn't honor their parents under the law of Moses could die. And actually, you read an account of this back in Deuteronomy where some guy was disrespecting his parents. And the elders brought this kid out and stoned him. Like, wow. That was God's law over Israel. And by the way, we're not under this law, okay? But they were here during Jesus' time. Jesus has not gone to the cross yet. This is a time of transition from the law of Moses to the law of Christ. So Jesus is right in pointing this out. Honor your parents. And the Pharisees would have said, hey, that sounds great. That's what we want to do. All right, I'm going to come back to that in just a moment because there's another verse that I want to play in here. Leviticus chapter 27, verses 27 and 28 says this. But no devoted thing that a man devotes to the Lord of anything that he has, whether man or beast, or of his inherited field, shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted thing is most holy to the Lord. Okay, so if you had something that you devoted to the Lord, that was the Lord's. You couldn't take it back. In today's terms, you might come into a lot of money. And you might say, okay... I just got a couple million bucks. I, I'm going to give 
$100,000 to the Lord. And over the next few years, this $100,000 is just going to the Lord. When a need comes in, maybe it's for a missionary, maybe there's a specific need with the church, that $100,000 is specifically going to go to the Lord. I can't touch it for anything else. That's what Leviticus 27, 28 is talking about. When somebody had devoted something to the Lord, it needs to be given over to the Lord. And that's called Corbin. This is something that you devote and that belongs to God. Well, let's bring it all together. Honor your parents. Things that are devoted to the Lord belong to the Lord. So what did the Pharisees and the scribes do? Well, they cooked up a pretty good tradition that conveniently guarded themselves. They and their resources were all dedicated to God. After all, they were Pharisees, holy or separated ones belonging to the Lord. They had to be dedicated to God. On the other hand, there's mom and dad, the law of Moses. You're supposed to honor them. How would an adult child honor their parents in their old age? They'd open up the back room and they'd say, okay, mom and dad, you can come live in the back room. We'll take care of the needs that you have. We'll buy your food. We'll be the ones who provide resources for you. But what went on with the Pharisees and scribes was this. When it came to their parents needing help, they had cooked up this law for themselves that said, Oh, Corbin, Corbin, I and everything that I have belongs to the Lord. I can't give any of it to my parents. I can't open up the back room in my house to take care of them. And you look at this, and Jesus is saying, see how you violated the authority of God's word that you're saying you're holding up? You've cooked up this tradition of the elders. You have another authority that you're submitting yourself to. And we say, wow, what hardness of heart to set up traditions like that that so clearly contradict the word of God. But again, let's think about this for a moment and start pulling in strings of application. Do we see this kind of thinking lingering, maybe not even lingering, but reaching into our own hearts and our own lives? On one hand, thinking about religious legalism, you can have this legalism that makes the extra rules that become the standard to which everyone must strive for. This can be something as as small as things that take place at home. And parents, let me just give you a word of caution that the rules at home are not God's rules. You, the rule maker now, you're you're the rule maker and the rule is that your children must honor you. Let me explain this just a little bit further. You've got some teenagers and you're saying, Curfew is at 10.30. And that teenager comes up to you and says, where do you find that in God's word? Why is that law here for me? And we respond as parents saying, it's not in God's word. But what is in God's word is that you should honor your father and your mother. So honor your father. See, you don't make this rule over here or the standard that you've set in your home on par 
with God's word. You point them back to God's word and say, you submit to God's word and submitting to God's word. But what happens over the years is parents take this rule over here and they make it on par with God's word. Be careful about that. You're setting your kids up for hardness. Those kinds of things can creep into a family and soon children are having a hard time with mom and dad. What about cultural legalism? Um, I'm not standing on a soapbox when I talk about this, but it's June. What's June? June is Pride Month. The message among liberal Christians, a church that I went to for a service recently, says, we believe that the scriptures are the inspired word of God on their website. Going there for a service, so I just came across it. Sentence underneath this, we accept all people into our community of faith, regardless of race, okay, that's good, or sexuality. All right, so you might be here visiting and you might be saying, that just buzzed my tower here. What are you saying? I'm saying this, I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that you're hearing God's word. We all need to place ourselves under God's word. So I have sin in my life. How do I know that I have sin? I go to God's word, and God's word tells me that I have sin. June is Pride Month. The things that our culture is celebrating, a lot of that is sin. Homosexuality, we look at the word of God, we pull it out from the word of God, that's sin. And so what's happening culturally is these new traditions and authorities are being raised up alongside of Scripture or above Scripture saying, you need to obey. You need to celebrate. You need to accept. Since God is love, well, therefore you must love my sexuality that I love. And what's happening with churches that I just mentioned and with Christians, so-called Christians, We are nullifying the word of God by raising up the commandments of culture above God's word. Now look what he says in verse 13 to the Pharisees. When you raise up these traditions on par with scripture, what are you doing? You are thus making void. That term void is a legal term, meaning you've nullified it. You've said it's no longer binding upon us. So what's happening is you're taking the word of God and you're saying, it's no longer an authority for us that we have to live under. And he goes on to say that you are just uh, nullifying the word or voiding out the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. Why would he say that? Because once you've opened up that door just to crack, just to allow something to come in to accommodate your life, then anything can come into your life. So let me just step back and say this. It's not our responsibility as Christians to curse the world. It's not our responsibility to shout at the darkness. What's our responsibility? Our responsibility is just to come under the authority of God's word and recognize the legitimate authority and not void it out. The only authority for what sin is, is the word of God. In the end, what Jesus is saying is this. You can trust the word of God over the traditions of men. Keep coming back 
to the word of God. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That's what guides us going forward. And so to protect ourselves from the ditch of religious legalism or cultural legalism, we must keep the word of God in front of us as our only authority. God has given it to us as our final authority for morality. All right, so church, be on guard. These are interesting times to walk through as Christians. Our authority is the word of God. Now, Jesus won't stop by simply putting the Pharisees in their place. They've gathered to him, but he moves on in verses 14 through 23. As though to say to his disciples, be careful that you don't think that you're sinless. So verse 14 through 23 leads us to our third question. Are we seeing the source of our sin? Are we seeing the source of our sin? So verses 14 through 23 say this. And he called the people to him again and said to them, that's Jesus, he's speaking now. Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Okay, now he's done. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. So that statement that he had just made is a parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? So the disciples hear this and they're like, Jesus, what are you talking about? And he asks, are, are you without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. So by the way, you can see that he's moving from the Mosaic law into the new covenant because he's moving away from the unclean nature of foods that is pronounced in the Mosaic law. And he's saying, like, that's not an issue anymore. Food comes in and it goes out. It's done. But notice the new category that he introduces here. The category that he introduces here is the heart. You see, since it enters not his heart. Okay, so now we're talking about something altogether different. And by the way, if you're new to the Bible, he's not talking about that thing behind your sternum that has four chambers. He's talking about the deepest part of who we are as individuals. So he said... What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, deep down inside of someone, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. And all these evil things come from within. And they are what defile a, per a person. So Jesus is going deeper. He is taking us down to the heart. It's all about the heart. The heart is what God is looking at. So by example, you remember when Samuel the prophet was looking for a king and he went to Jesse's sons and all the good-looking sons came in and he passed by each one of them. And Samuel thought, surely this has got to be the, the, the next king. And God kept saying, no, 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 no. And, and eventually, Jesse's, or Samuel's like, do you got one more? Yeah, he's out in the field. And David eventually came in. And, and, and the thing that God was teaching Samuel was this, that man is looking on the outward appearance, but God is, where is God's attention focused? Focused on the heart. 
And Jesus says this, from within, from the heart come all of these things, not foods, but these sins which defile a person. So 13 sins here. Let me go through them very quickly. Number one, evil thoughts. Any kind of sinful thought. Now, which of us is sinless after that? We're all guilty now. Thought, or sin number two, sexual immorality. Any kind of sexual act, premarital sex, extramarital sex, homosexual acts of sex, any kind of sexual act that happens outside the moral boundaries of God's gift between one man and one woman in marriage. Number three, theft. This is a sin. It's the eighth commandment, taking anything that does not belong to you. Number four, murder. The sixth commandment, taking anyone's life. Number five, adultery. The seventh commandment, going outside the marriage covenant to engage in sexual behavior. Number six, he talks about coveting. A craving for more than what you have, thinking that you won't be satisfied unless you have to have it. Number seven is wickedness. Sinful actions carried out in somebody's life. Number eight is deceit, speaking of dishonest words or dishonest behavior. Number nine is sensuality that he mentions here. Simply living for what feels good. That's what I live for. I live for my senses. I live ultimately for my senses, not the glory of God. Number 10 is envy. That It's kind of like coveting, but it's that constant eye that is always wandering around, looking at other things, because what God has given you is simply not good enough. Number 11, slander. The words that come out of your mouth, where do they come from? Your heart, and you're speaking evil of someone. Number 12 is pride. A high view of yourself, thinking you are more glorious than others. Number 13 is foolishness, acting as though you are not accountable to God. So Jesus just names off 13 things. And I can't help but think that the disciples were looking at the Pharisees and scribes saying, thank you, Jesus, for putting them in their place. They're the sinners now. But Jesus turns to those who are closest to him and says, wait a second, you have a need. And let's look at where your need actually is. It's not in the robes. It's not in the fancy hats like those Pharisees and scribes are wearing. We all have a need, and it goes down to the deepest part of who we are. It is in our heart. And what comes out of your life is going to show what's going on in your heart. And that's where you need a Messiah. So many of you will shake my hands after a sermon. And many of you who have done this have said, man, cold hands there you got. My cold hands are up here on the surface. You get to see them, you get to touch them, but something is going on deep inside of me that isn't quite normal, I guess you might say. My circulation, and I'm going to say it goes back to my heart, something's going on in my biology deep down inside me that causes this on the surface to be evident. That's what Jesus is talking about. The things in our lives are springing out of a fountain deep inside of us of who we are. If you think about this, you begin to realize, man, I'm not as good as I think I am. I never saw selfishness in my life so plainly than when I got married. You know, there's part of living life as a single 
where you get to make your own decisions. And then you're called into marriage. Husbands, how are you supposed to be called into marriage? Well, you're supposed to be called into marriage following the pattern and example of Christ. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. So husbands, love your wives that same way. And wow, not that Chris isn't lovely. I mean, who couldn't love her? But I just see these sorts of things in my heart saying, but I want this or I want that. Was it my circumstances that were the issue? I mean, you look at Chris and you're like, no, that can't be a circumstance, dude. That's all on you. And that's the truth. There's a darkness in my heart. Add to that four children. And some of you have passed me. Six children, seven children back there. The Millmans are in for it, you know. (laughs) They just draw selfishness up to the surface. I've used this in the past. If I had a cup up here, I could have it full of water, and I could hold it right here, and I could jostle that cup, and water would splash over the edge and onto the floor here. And we could ask the question, what caused the water to come out of the cup? And so many times we're thinking, well, it's the the jostling that takes place. It's that hit that takes place. But Jesus would ask it this way. What caused the water to come out of the cup? What was in the cup? See, if the cup was empty, nothing comes out of it. But what caused the water to come out of the cup was that water was in the cup. And what takes place in life in so many areas, whether you're a young person or whether you're older, is that circumstances come along and bump up against each one of us. Temptations come along and bump up against each one of us. And what comes out is what's in there. And Jesus is looking at his disciples and he's saying, there is an issue with each one of us. He's looking at us saying, there's an issue with each one of of us. Now we step back And we have to ask this question. How does this fit into the Gospel of Mark? Why is this here? You remember the very beginning, and over the weeks we've been coming back to this. How does Mark explain who Jesus is? He gave him two titles, right? The first one that, well, the one that we've been working through through his miracles over the past few weeks has been The Son of God. Here's his divine nature. Here's God in the flesh. We see that he can do what nobody else can do. He's unique in that category. But the first title in Mark 1, verse 1, is that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the Deliverer. And he's coming to set up a kingdom. But this kingdom is not a physical kingdom in nature. It's a spiritual kingdom in nature. And this kingdom is going to rescue and redeem. Those in the kingdom are those who have been redeemed. And the thing is, well, what's holding us back? What's the enemy that we're all facing? What do we need a Messiah for? Which leads us to question number four. Are we embracing the Messiah as our Savior? What do we need a Messiah for? We need a Messiah for what's inside of us. We need a Christ. We need Jesus for our own hearts here. 
you get to the end of verse 23 and you're saying, I'm guilty before God. I'm a sinner. This is why Jesus has come. One commentator wrote the following. Some think that education and culture can redeem the heart and society. Not so, he says. I once spent six months in a highly cultured environment in Cambridge, England. I listened with many others to an evening of Latin requiems in King's College Chapel, the most beautiful aesthetic experience I've ever had. Listen to Vivaldi in Great St. Mary's and Shakespeare in the Arts Theater. But culture, apart from Christ, is not redemptive. Many of the same people who were transported by the requiems watched transvestites perform lewd dances the next night at the theater. Knowing Latin and Greek and listening to chamber music is good, better than most pursuits, but one can do these things and still be a moral Philistine. Philistines, if you're not familiar with scripture, were people outside of God's covenant community. They were lost people. They were people who were wicked. It's impossible for us to find acceptance with God, to be rescued from our sins and stand in a relationship with God by simply being better educated, by being cleaned up, and going to the theater. We can't be good enough for God. And that's why Mark is introducing us to Jesus, who is the Messiah, the Deliverer. As Mark's gospel unfolds, we see the Messiah marching through as a warrior who has come to defeat sin. And not only has he come to defeat sin, but he has come to give his life as a ransom for many. To serve and to give his life on our behalf so that we could be rescued from what's within Jesus would give his life for our sin. And he would give his life because apart from him, we would be lost and be enslaved to it. A change has to take place within each of us at a very deep level. Jesus told Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see it. He cannot see the kingdom of God. He he can't even understand the kingdom of God. He can't come into this relationship with God. And he wasn't talking about physical rebirth. He was talking about a new heart that Jesus is pointing out. That new heart that's within us that springs up with sin so many times. Ezekiel 36, God had talked about this. He said, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. God would do this for his people. And in doing that... We think about passages like 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that when somebody lays hold of Christ in faith and says, yes, Jesus, I believe in you as my Savior, Paul writes this, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. A new heart is there. Does this mean we're sinless? Does this mean we're perfect going forward? No, but we have a bent towards God and want to follow him forward. And so we see here, all the more reason for our need for the Messiah. The deepest part of who we are is sinful. God's word tells us that. But in Jesus, and in Jesus alone, we find a Savior who will save us from ourselves. And if you haven't come to Jesus in faith, I I just encourage you today, trust in him today as your Savior. Let's pray.